All right, Mark chapter 15, verse 11. Mark chapter 15, verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they crowded again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for other churches that preach your gospel. We thank you so much for Zoe. We thank you for all the people that we love that are there. And we thank you especially for Caleb and for Stephen, for Mason, and for their families that, go, that are going to serve the kids. I pray that you would bless them, that you would help them to be full of joy. And the Lord, these, these kids would see the worth of Jesus. That they would see he's worthy to be followed, he's worthy to be lived for, he's worthy to die for. And the Lord, they would love you and trust you. We thank you so much for the church retreat that Zoe's having. We pray that you'd bless them, you'd help them to grow in love for one another, and love for your word, and love for, for you. Lord, I pray for this sermon. Um, I pray that we would see Jesus in his death, that it would not just be some fairy tale story, but that we would see his sufferings, that we would see that they're terrible, and that Lord, we would see that they're for us. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you died. You willingly died. You willingly suffered for us. May you receive the reward of your suffering. I thank you for every person here, Lord. Would you speak through your word? It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. The old song says, Man of Sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. I'll say that again. In my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You ever wonder why it had to be like this? That the Son of God, the beloved Son of Heaven, was betrayed, beaten, scourged, scorned, mocked, mangled, reviled, ridiculed. He came clothed in love and yet was greeted by hate. He came clothed with grace and truth. It was hailed with crucify him, crucify him. He came to be the Savior of all men, but he was hated and condemned as a criminal. Why'd it have to be like this? God is all-powerful, right? So maybe God could have come up with a different way of salvation. Something that was, you know, less bloody, less brutal. Why not salvation by good works? That seems a little more humane, a little more fair. If you earn enough points, then you get into heaven. Or why not salvation by birthline? If you're born to the right family, you have the right pedigree, then automatic salvation. It's clear. Easy. Or why not, why not just salvation for everyone? You know, if you're a human, you get saved. No pain, no gore, no blood, no problem. But no. Each of these schemes fails. Salvation by works, no one will be good enough. The standard for heaven is God's character. He's holy, Holy, holy. And holy doesn't mean just like, you know, better than most people or better than average or even super, super duper good. It means perfect. It means blameless. Not even a spot of sin. 
What man could reach the heights of perfection? You'd have to be perfect in love, perfect in justice, perfect in mercy, perfect in truth, perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty, perfect in thought, perfect in deed, perfect in attitude, all the time, forever. What man could ever reach that height? Salvation is not by works. None are righteous. No, not one. Okay, well, what about salvation by birthline? You know, you have the right family, you have the right parents. The Jews thought this was true. They said, okay, Abraham's our father, therefore, we're God's people, no matter what. But they grew spiritually lazy, arrogant, stubborn, boastful, proud. They said they loved God, but they lived like demons. God will not be mocked. Many pastors' kids have boasted, or many pastors' nephews and nieces have boasted, Oh, my dad's a preacher. My uncle's a preacher. He loves God. But if they don't believe in Christ for themselves, that means nothing. If they don't believe in Christ for themselves, they're not saved. Salvation is not inherited. It must be received personally as a gift. Salvation is not by birthline. Salvation is a gift that each person receives directly from the hand of God. So then what about just everyone gets saved? Salvation for everyone. This way, everyone gets to heaven, no one goes to hell, right? This actually is the worst. Because if instead of bringing heaven on earth, it would bring hell to heaven. What kind of place would heaven be if everyone that was there hated God? It would just be like this earth. Even worse, if this were true, God would be mocked. Because how would you worship a God who embraced murderers and torturers and kidnaps and perverts and abusers and liars and thieves without demanding a payment for their crimes. That kind of God is a God who doesn't deserve to be respected. That's a God who would be despised. You would not love a God who didn't care about the sins and sorrows caused by sinners. So no, salvation is not given to all. God will punish the wicked. He will vindicate the righteous. The judge of the whole earth will judge rightly. So salvation by works fails. Salvation by birth fails. Obligatory salvation for all fails. There's no other way of being saved. No bloodless, no convenient, no easy way of salvation. Salvation is only through the suffering and death of Jesus. So let's look at the Savior. His suffering, his shame, his death. And I ask you, why did it have to be like this? Why did Christ have to come and suffer and die? It's because it's the only way for God to uphold his righteousness and demonstrate his love. It's the only way for God to exalt himself and still save sinners. It's the only way for God to truly adopt wretched people, evil people like us, into his family. The only way is for Christ to be crucified. If there was an easier way, a better way, God would have done it. But it must be this way to forgive sin. He must kill his own son. And not just any death, but a torturous death, a painful death, a shameful death. Often a shorthand we say, the gospel is Jesus died for our sins. That's true, right? But you notice we've been in the crucifixion narrative for like months. The gospel is forcing us to slow down and to meditate on each detail of Christ's suffering. So we've seen him praying in the garden, We've seen him betrayed by Judas. We've seen him abandoned by all his disciples. We've seen him condemned as a blasphemer, then beaten by the Jews. But tonight, we see him condemned by not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And then ridiculed, mocked, 
scourged right up to the point where he's about to be nailed to the cross. The key idea for tonight is that Jesus, the king over all, was condemned in our place for our sins. And we see that in two scenes. First, the king, silent as a lamb, and then the king, substitute for sinners. So first, the king of the Jews, silent as a lamb. Verse 1 of chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, verse 1, says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation, that's a meeting, with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Remember last week we talked about how the Jews gathered and they all condemned Jesus, right? They all said he was guilty enough to be worthy of death. But Israel was ruled by the Roman Empire. And so they actually don't have authority to kill anyone. They need to get Rome to do it for them. So they bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor of the province of Palestine, which includes Jerusalem. And he's actually a really wicked, really brutal, and very smart man. As the representative of the Roman emperor, he had the authority of life and death over the Jews. And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? King of the Jews? Jesus never used that term for himself. So where did that actually come from? And it actually comes from the leaders of the Jews making it up. They said in Luke 23, we found this man, Jesus, misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is a king. Remember, the Jews condemned Jesus for blasphemy. Blasphemy is when you say something bad against God. But Pilate's a Roman. Pilate worships gods like Zeus and Poseidon and Hermes, Athena. He doesn't care about the God of the Bible. So he wouldn't care about blasphemy. That, that's not what he would actually make someone die for. And so the Jews lie. They say, oh, Jesus, he's claiming to be a king. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And why is that bad? Because who's the king of the Roman Empire? You guys know? Caesar. Caesar's the king. So you can't just be walking around saying, I'm the king, I'm the king. If Caesar's really the king, if you do that, Caesar will kill you. That's called treason. Right? So Pilate mockingly asked Jesus, you, you're the king of the Jews? You know, he's wearing common clothes. He's tied up in, I don't know, probably ropes or chains. He's got, remember how many followers does he have at this point? None. Zero, right? Zero followers. What kind of king is that? He's a loser king. But without actually knowing it, Pilate's telling the truth. Pilate's telling the truth. Was Jesus really the king of the Jews? Yeah, he's really the king of the Jews. The Magi came from the east. They said, where's he who was born the king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. And Jesus answers Pilate, you've said so. So Pilate says, hey, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you've said so, right? Now, this isn't really a yes or no, clearly. He's kind of, I don't know, playing the middle line. He's saying, you said it, not me. I didn't say it, you said it. We'll see why later. Verse 3, And the chief priest accused him, accused Jesus, of many things. And Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Now, who's on trial here? Who's being tested and being drilled? Jesus, right? Jesus, right, Theo? In one sense, that's true. He's being accused. He's one whose life hangs in the balance, right? Pilate's trying to decide what's going to, what's going to do with him. But in another sense, Jesus is not on trial. Pilate is. Because Jesus knows he's innocent, right? Jesus knows he's innocent. 
God knows God is innocent. He knows he's blameless. We, the readers, know that Jesus is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. So the verdict is clear. Jesus is not guilty. But what will Pilate do? Will Pilate do what's right? Will he set Jesus free? Or will Pilate do something wrong? Will he be just like Judas, just like the leaders of Israel, just like Peter, and actually deny the Christ? Verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate was amazed. Again, Jesus is the king, and he's silent as a lamb. He's silent before his own murderers. He doesn't make any defense, even though he knows he's innocent. Because he knows he will suffer as a guilty man, no matter what he says. And he goes willingly to the cross. Remember we talked about last, I mean, two, three weeks ago? Jesus was determined to die. And so he stayed silent. Now a second part. The king of the Jews, substitute for sinners. Look at verse 6. Not the feast. Pilate used to release for them, the Jews, one prisoner for whom they'd ask. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they crowded again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now who's heard this story before? Cool, most of you. Great. That's good. But don't let the familiarity of the story rob it of its power. I mean, think of, think of it. Everyone turns their back on the Messiah. Messiah is willing to trade a guilty man who's been convicted of his crimes, Barabbas, and let him go free, and then condemn an innocent man, Jesus, in his place. Pilate thinks he's innocent. And he's like, sure, you can kill him. That's fine. The chief priest turn the whole crowd to betray their true king. Remember, what was this crowd shouting just on Sunday, just five days ago? Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's very different than crucify him, right? In five days, they betrayed their master and Messiah. Everyone turns on Jesus. And Pilate here fails the test, right? When the pressure's on, when his own popularity is on the line, he doesn't care about justice. He didn't stand for truth. He feared what the people thought, and he loved their opinion more than righteousness. So he made the innocent man die for the sake of the guilty man, the murderer. Barabbas, not just a murderer, though, but someone who had committed murder in the insurrection, as verse 7 says. What's an insurrection? Anyone know? What's an insurrection? Rebellion, good. In insurrections, when you're in a government, and you're like, no, we hate this government. We're going to overthrow the government and set up a new government, right? Insurrections are treason. For insurrections, you get punished. In other words, Barabbas was trying to be a political savior to save Israel from the Roman oppressors. 
And the punishment for insurrection in the Roman Empire is crucifixion. You need to know, though, Barabbas actually isn't really a name. It's more like a nickname. Um, who knows what Barnabas means? Son of? Um, Barnabas means? Starts with the E. Starts with the E. Anyone know? <laughs> Barnabas means son of encouragement. His real name, his real name is Joseph, right? So it's Joseph, Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Just like bar mitzvah, maybe some of your friends are Jewish and they have bar mitzvahs. Bar mitzvah means son of the law. Barabbas means son of a father. Son of a father. Hold on, hold on. Wait, though. If Barabbas means son of a father, that means the crowd is being asked to choose between two Barabbases. Between the son of a father, who is the criminal, the murderer, the one who wanted to be the political savior, who is destined for crucifixion, who is what the Jews wanted, and the son of the father, who is Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, the true king of kings, the anointed spiritual savior destined for glory, who's exactly what the Jews needed. So they're being asked to choose between two Barabbases, the son of a father, the murderer, and a son of the father, the son of God. And they chose not the son of God, but a murderer. One, one pastor, he says, they did not want the true son of the father, they wanted a different Jesus, a Jesus they could live with, a Jesus who would not make them feel guilty, a Jesus of this world. So the Jews betrayed their Savior. It's not that they just ignored him or missed him or forgot about him. That'd be bad enough. But they actually killed him because they wanted someone else. They rejected their own king and killed him because they wanted someone else. Barabbas is a real person. This actually happened. But he also represents every man, every son of a father, every daughter of a mother, every sinner who believes in Jesus Christ. Because according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, the Jews traded Christ in exchange for a sinner. Christ became Barabbas' substitute. And they condemned Jesus to die and be crucified to save one man. But God intended far more. He intended far more than just one man to be saved. 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let me say that again. For Christ, the righteous one, suffered for sins. The righteous one, Christ, suffered for the unrighteous. That's us. That he might bring us to God. So Christ didn't just suffer to take the place of Barabbas. He suffered to take the place of sinners that he would bring us to God. Christ had to be betrayed and rejected by the Jews and the Gentiles. He had to be crucified in sinners' place for crimes he did not commit. He had to be betrayed by Judas, abandoned by the disciples, hated by the leaders of Israel, denied by Peter, rejected by the whole nation, condemned by the government because that's what we deserve. Because that's what we deserve. And he took our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his own love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to focus on the last phrase. Christ died for us. 
and focus on just one word, the word for. What does for mean here? Does it mean in support of, right? As in, are you for candy corn or against candy corn? Who's for candy corn? Wow, so few. I like candy corn. Okay. It means, do you agree candy corn is good or do you disagree, right? Did Christ die in, in support of us, as like a vote for us? Or does for mean because of, right? I like candy corn. For, it is 89% sugar by weight, right? The reason I love it is because of the sugar in it. So, did Jesus Christ die because of us? Are we the reason Jesus Christ died? Or third, does for mean in the place of? Like, I will trade you these disgusting Twizzlers for all your candy corn. Right? I'm switching, trading, substituting. Did Christ die in the place of us? So, did, did Christ die in support of us? Like, he, like, I don't know, was cheering for us. He's like, yeah, I really like these guys. No. No. That's not what I meant. Jesus didn't die for us as if we're so lovable, like so cute or something, right? The gospel is not, I say it again, the gospel is not, you're so good and God loves you so much that he just couldn't bear being without you in heaven, so he died for you. That's not the gospel, all right? We're wicked, we're sinners, we're not lovable. Secondly, did Jesus die because of us? Are we the reason why Jesus died? And technically, yeah, that's true. That's true, because he didn't die for his own sins, right? That's not his fault that he died. He had none. But third, actually, we can be more precise. Jesus died in our place. Jesus died as our substitute. We should have been on the cross, but he took our place and died instead. And we see that because of Barabbas. We see that because of Barabbas. Barabbas, the son of a father, the murderer, deserved crucifixion for his sins. Christ, the son of God, the blameless lamb of God, deserved eternal glory for his righteousness. But Christ was crucified, and Barnabas went free. Christ received the condemnation and punishment that Barabbas deserved. Barabbas received the freedom that Christ deserved. Christ died in his place for his sins. And dear Christian, because of this, you should see how much your sins cost. As an unrighteous, sinful person, you deserve the punishment that Christ took in your place. He was condemned and beaten and mocked and hated and reviled for you, because that's what you deserve. He who knew no sin took your sin upon his shoulders, that he would be crushed for you. He's your substitute. Remember how I talked about the Lamb of God who died in the place of sinners, right? He's your Lamb. He took the wrath that you deserve so that, you, none, so that none will be left for you. So when you see the suffering of Jesus, you get just a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of how much your sin costs, how high the price is for your crimes against God. But just how high is that price? We'll give verse 15 once more. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Properly, crucifixion is a means of torturing someone to death by nailing them to a piece of wood, naked, in public, for all to see. A crucifixion victim would be left to die. It would be exposure from, to the wind, the rain, the sun. And finally, by asphyxiation, which basically means you're suffocating to death, would die. Sometimes crucifixion would take days to kill someone. 
We'll learn more about that in the next passage. But for now, you need to know that the Roman government was really good at crucifying people because it had great shock value. And it deterred people from committing the same crimes as these people. Right? If you saw someone who committed insurrection crucified, basically it was saying, Rome was saying, you don't want to be like this guy. You threaten us, you die like this man. But sometimes crucifixion took too long. And so to prevent it from taking too long, they would scourge a victim before crucifying them. That's what Jesus delivers Jesus. This is what Pilate delivers Jesus over to. Pilate says he had Jesus scourged. But in just those few words, we enter a world of suffering. To be scourged, a victim would first be stripped of his clothes, his hands tied to a post, face towards the ground. Then a soldier would take a leather whip, woven with sharp fragments of bone and metal, and whip that victim. Over and over, until the victim's backside will be covered in gashes and lacerations, stripes streaming with blood. The scourging would strip off flesh, often exposing bones and intestines. And there was no limit to the number of strokes. Scourging was designed to maximize suffering and to bring its victims to the very edge of death. But sometimes the scourging was so brutal that people actually died before ever being crucified. That's the scourging Jesus endured. That's the suffering he went through. And we sing all these beautiful songs about his death and his cross, and we should. But we should never minimize the horror of his suffering. He didn't just die. He was tortured to death. That's what your sin deserves. That's what my sin deserves. So burn the image of the bloody Savior into your mind. That's what it costs to save you. But his sufferings aren't even done. Look at verse 16. And the soldier led him away inside the palace, that's the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion of soldiers. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they would mock him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is a bunch of thugs acting like soldiers, having fun. This is a pack of wolves playing with their food, mocking the Son of God for sport. Even as he's bleeding and dying from his scourging, they heap on more pain and more ridicule. And look at all the details that Mark provides for us. They put a purple robe up on him. That's the, that's the color of royalty. So they're mocking him, saying, oh, he's the king of the Jews, ha, ha, ha. And then they put a crown of thorns on his head. And they jam it into his head so he's bleeding. They play dress-up like him, like he's some doll or plaything. And they say, hail, which is what they would normally greet the Caesar with. They say, hail, look, he's coming back from war, he's a king. And they take the rod and they smack him in the face, the most disrespectful place, place to hit someone. They spit on him to say he's disgusting, he's worse than dirt. And they kneel to worship him as if he really deserved that worship. Remember, who are they doing this to? Not just some Jew, not just some innocent man, not just some moral teacher, not just some miracle worker. They're doing it to the Son of God. They're doing it to the King. They're doing it to the one who made them. Jesus could absolutely destroy them. If just one flash of his holy, righteous anger would be let out, they'd be incinerated on the spot, damned to hell for eternity. How dare they mock him? He's the king of the universe. How dare they bow down to him as if he's, as if he's not, actually not God? How dare they crucify him as if he's their victim? This is not right. This is so 
wrong. It's a complete inversion of how the universe should work. But God, but Jesus, wants it to happen. Because this is what you and I deserve. God made man, right? We didn't make God. And God made man lower than himself so that we would worship and adore him, so we would glorify him and find our greatest delight in him. We're made to honor him, to give him thanks, to adore him, to sing to him, to walk in perfect harmony with him. God wants us to love him. Why? Because he's the greatest being. He wants us to love him because that's what we need. We need all of our joy, all of our light, all of our love and life and truth to come from him. There's nothing good apart from God. So God wants us to love him because he wants us to have what's best, namely himself. But man rejected God, not just in the Garden of Eden, but every moment since. He sits on the throne as a king. And we despise him, reject him, and do whatever we want. That's exactly what's happened in our passage, right? These Romans are killing God. They're murdering the sovereign ruler of the universe. The one who names the stars of heaven and counts every grain of sand on earth. It's fundamentally wrong. It's so wrong. Instead of magnifying him, they mock him. Instead of praising him, they parody him. Instead of revering him, they ridicule him. But it's not just them. It's us. The Jews condemned the Messiah to die. The Romans mocked their Savior and tortured him. But when we sin, we functionally, fundamentally say, I wish God were dead. When we lie to our parents to try to get out of trouble, we're functionally saying, I don't want God to define reality. I want to define reality, and I want to live like there's no consequences for my actions. Or when we're bitter against our family members or classmates, we functionally say, I don't want God to be judge. I want to be judge. I want her to be punished. In fact, I'll punish her instead of God. When we try to define ourselves by what we wear or the kind of grades we get, the kind of shows we watch, the kind of games we play, we functionally say, well, God has told me about myself, that I'm his creation, that I'm his son or his daughter, that I'm his beloved. That's not enough. I'm going to make my own identity. I'll be independent from God and make myself God. When we do such things, we reveal we don't really worship God, and we reveal that it would be much more convenient for us if God just died. Sure, we might go to church, sing the right songs, give all the right answers to youth group, do the things religious people are supposed to do, but deep down in our hearts, God is not first. And I remind you, it's exactly why Jesus had to die. For sinners like that. For sinners like us. Romans 5.8, again, says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ didn't just die only to show the high price of our salvation. It does that. But much more, it displays the wonderful, immeasurable love of God for his people. The love of God is not a love like any other earthly love. It doesn't respond to you as if you're lovable first. It doesn't love because you are good, because you're worthy. Worthy. God initiates his love. God loves first. God loves most, and God's love is from before time began. I don't know how that works exactly, but it's from before time began. It's a love that condescends to sinners 
like us. It's a love that invades our world. It's a love that comes to us even when we're rebels, even when we're mocking him, even when we're spitting in his face, even when we're trying to kill him. That's the kind of love you've never known before. It's the kind of love that bears shame and suffering from the very people he's trying to love. It's the kind of love in which Christ lays down his own life for us. Jesus himself said, greater love has no, no one than this, the one laid down his life for his friends. God's love is patient and kind, humble and merciful, forgiving, righteous and true, long-suffering, long-enduring, full of hope and peace, unfailing, always. It never falters, never fades, never wearies, never lies. It's a love you can bank your life on. No more than that. It's a love you can bake your eternity on. God's love is heart-transforming. It's soul-restoring, peace-giving, life-changing. It turns rebels into daughters and sons. It turns God-haters into God-worshippers. It turns the lost into the found, the unbelieving to the believing, the dead to the living, the broken to the whole, the damned to the saved. And dear unbeliever, if you hear you're not a Christian, or maybe you're realizing you're not, that's the kind of love that waits for you if only you come to Christ. That's the kind of love that pursues you, that would even bring you to church. That's the kind of love that would give you the gospel over and over and over again so you believe. Every other love fails. I mean, aren't you tired of running from one person to the next, from the next boy, the next girl, the next experience, the next thrill, trying to fill the gaping hole within your heart, that aching for something? That dissatisfaction exists in your heart because you don't have the love of God. You starve because you don't have the bread of life. You thirst because you don't have the living water. You ache because you do not know God's love for you. You were made for Him. You were made to worship Him. You were made to be wrapped up in divine embrace and to know this lover from all eternity. Nothing but the love of God. This love of God displayed in Jesus Christ on that cross will satisfy. Come to him. He waits for you with arms open wide. And dear Christian, if you're sure you're a Christian, you believe this gospel, you love this gospel, this is the kind of love that God has for you. On your worst days, on your best days. It's not dependent upon your performance. It's not dependent upon you being good for him. It's dependent on himself. And his love never fails. And his love transforms everything in your life. And it makes Christ worth everything. His love, his love is worth it all. And so you, dear believer, you can say with all the saints that his robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, was condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and alone. But I, as though he, embraced and welcomed home. Rest in the love of your Savior for you and see it on the cross in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the display both of the cost of our sin and the height and depth and width and length and richness of your love for us. Help us to never separate those two, Lord that we would see Jesus Christ's cross and be absolutely horrified that you would demand that kind of punishment for what we do against you. And that we would be absolutely delighted 
that your love goes that deep and that we truly, Lord, are forgiven because he paid the price, because he paid it all. Lord, I pray that you would give us the love for Christ because you loved us first. I pray you would give us a faith that will trust him for everything and anything because he is worthy. And I pray you get all the glory from every soul here. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.